0: The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. I'm, I'm really thrilled because England have made it to the second round. And I'm really, really thrilled because we get to play Colombia, And I know, I know we're going to win. And Pablo said this morning, This will be the first time ever Columbia make it to the quarterfinals because they're going to beat England. And Carolina's very confident, but I'm not so sure. In fact, I was tempted to wear my England jersey under this one next week. If we win, I'll wear it next week for you, okay? All right. Well, this morning as we continue with our Better Than series, um, the passage that we're going to reflect on this morning and think about is one of those kind of passages that's hard and and challenging. Sometimes the the Bible can be like a hammer. It can be confronting. It can be alarming. It can be really challenging. And other times it, it can be like honey, where it can soothe you and encourage you. Well, today's passage is both and. It's a hammer and it's honey. And so this morning we need to pay close attention to it. And so the passage is Hebrews chapter 5. It's a large slab of scripture, Hebrews five eleven, all the way down to verse 20 of chapter 6. And so we're not going to read through it because we'd be here all morning, but we will cover the majority of this passage in this sermon. If you remember some time ago when we kicked off this series, I mentioned that the book of Hebrews can be summarized by four E words. Do you remember those E words if you were here Glenn, you're so honest now. He's sitting there going, nah, I can't remember at all. I've totally forgotten. Well, let me jog your memories. The first D word, lovely you, Glenn, examination. Remember this examination? The book of Hebrews is confronting, as I've just mentioned, and we're going to sense that and experience that today. It really does challenge us. Do we really love Christ, and do we really love his kingdom and his church? And so it's a book of examination. Also, it's a book of expectation. It's a future-oriented book. It comes alongside us to encourage us, especially when we go through hard moments and hard times, and it, and it calls us to li- look ahead to Christ, the Son of God, and the wonderful inheritance that he's won for us and the wonderful kingdom that he's going to bring at his return, this kingdom of light and love and eternal worth and, and, and beauty. Uh, so expectation. Also exhortation. That is, it's all about Jesus, He's the Son of God, and that's why we've entitled this series Better Than, because he's better than everything that went before him. So it's all about elevating Christ. Now, the last one, don't put it up just yet. Who can remember it? Anyone? Come on, say it out. I, I think I heard someone say exhortation, all right? Exhortation. Now, I'm highlighting this one. Because our passage this morning is an extended exhortation. Who remembers the illustration? If you didn't remember the term, hopefully you remember the image that I gave you of Leighton Hewitt's fist prump. You remember? The, the come on, the come on. That's how the book of Hebrews functions in our lives as well. It comes alongside us and, and, and says, come on, come on. Um, we exhort you, I exhort you, says the author, not to drift away from Jesus. I, I exhort you, come on to uh, uh, fix your eyes and your heart on the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, Jesus. Come on, I exhort you to not neglect meeting together. Yeah, on and on it goes, exhortation after exhortation. Well, this morning, as I've mentioned, this is an extended exhortation. And by and large, the exhortation is to grow up in Christ. That's what it's about. It's about making spiritual progress. Not to be infants. Look, look at verse 1 of chapter 6 with me. This is what our author says. He says, therefore, now we will consider why the therefore is therefore in just a moment. But he says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings, the ABCs, in other words, about Christ and be taken forward to what? Maturity. And so the author here, he doesn't want us to be in a rut, spiritually speaking. He doesn't want us to be infants, spiritually immature. He wants us to be mature, to make spiritual progress. Now, just drop down to verse 12 of chapter 6. He says, and this is a pivotal verse. It kind of summarizes this whole section. He says, we do not want you to become what? Lazy, sluggish, but do something else, make progress in this way, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And so again, he says, We don't want you to just stay put. We want you to move forward, he said. We we want you to progress, to mature in your faith. And I trust that this is the reason why we're here this morning. Because we don't want to be in a rut. We want to grow in our faith. We want to become more like Christ because that's what we're called to. That's what the Christian life is largely about. Growing up in Jesus, not remaining spiritual babes or spiritual infants. But developing in our faith. Hopefully, that's the reason why we're here. Hopefully, that's the reason why we read our Bibles and pray and encourage each other in small groups. We call them connect groups here. That's the reason why we do all of that so that we can grow up in Jesus. Now, our author tells us three striking, important realities about maturing in our faith. And the first two are very, very challenging. And so just a word of warning, you may need your seatbelts on, okay? They're confronting. The last one's very encouraging. You can take your seatbelt off when we get there. Here's the first thing that he tells us about progressing in our faith, maturing in our faith. He says this, spiritual progress or growth in Christ is stunted by laziness. This is It's stunted by being apathetical kind of indifferent, sluggish. Listen to what he says in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, we have much to say about this. Now just park this for a moment. Uh, He's referring back to verse 10 where he talks about Jesus and his priesthood being in the order of this guy with a strange name called Melchizedek. He'll touch on it last week. Next week we'll do a sermon on this theme, chapter 7. Just park that idea because it is a little confusing because our author goes on to say this. He says, We have much to say about this, Jesus stroke Melchizedek, but it is hard to make it clear to you why? Because he's a bad communicator? No. For some other reason, because you no longer listen, try to understand. That's a that's a very dangerous place to be in when you're in church and the word comes and you're not engaging your mind or your heart it's just words 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 in one ear out the other it doesn't register in your heart doesn't hit home that's a dangerous place to be it's, it's very you're not trying to understand he says uh, he he goes on in, in verse twelve we've already read it of chapter six and he says, you know we don't want you to become sluggish that that term sluggish or lazy um, is the Greek term nothos and it's the same word that he uses here we no longer uh, you no longer try to understand the, the new living translation puts it this way, verse eleven it's on the screen there it is there is there is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. And that term, nothros, it conveys the idea, laziness, of, of, of being numb, spiritually numb. Now, we all know what it is to have numb fingers, you know, where you can barely move them or, or numb toes, uh, where, you, where you can barely move them, but you have no feeling, Yeah. Well, this was their spiritual condition. They had motion without passion. And that's the dangerous place to be in, where you do your churchy thing, but there's no really life within. There's no passion. In other words, change the metaphor, their ears were in church, they were hearing the word of God, but their hearts were somewhere else. Again, that is very dangerous. When we come to church, our ears are here, but our hearts are somewhere else someplace else, and our author tells us that the, the effects of this spiritual inertia or apathy are stunting. They're, they're deadly in two main ways. They stunt, number one, uh, influence, loving influence. This is what he says in verse 12. Because of their laziness, he says, in fact, though by this time, all right, they'd been Christians for some time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. In other words, you still need to be spoon-fed. You've been in the faith for some time. You've been a part of church for a long time, and yet you still need, open up, to be spoon-fed. He says, by now, in other words, he's saying, you should be supporting other Christians. You should be coming alongside them and encouraging them and discipling them. But, But you need to be taught the elementary truths all over again. Their influence had been stunted because of their spiritual laziness. And I wonder, church, how many of us um, go unsupported. We're not encouraged the way we ought to be. We're not discipled the way we ought to be because of spiritual immaturity at PCC. You see, spiritual laziness, apathy will always stunt loving influence. And if we have stunted influence here amongst ourselves, not encouraging and supporting and discipling one another the way we ought to, then this church won't be as healthy as it ought to be. So, stunted influence because of laziness. Number two, stunted discernment. Listen to what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, Anyone who lives on milk, being still a goo goo gaga Christian, an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. That is, they don't really know the word of God. They don't know the ways of God, the wisdom of God. And so, verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who by, listen to the verb, notice the verb, by constant use have trained themselves to what? Discern or distinguish good from evil. This will always be the result of laziness. Not... not. Applying your mind to the word of God, not reading it, not reflecting on it, not meditating on it, not studying it, not engaging with it when it's preached on a Sunday, or, or really engaging with it in private in your own devotions, the effect the result will always be stunted discernment. Because it's impossible to know to know the mind of God and the, the wisdom of God without being in the word of God. You've got to be in the word of God to know the wisdom of God. And so, no doubt, these Christians were making foolish decisions. Maybe they were being led astray by the culture. They were, they were being uh, tempted to go back, as we know, to, to other things, their prior way of life, because they didn't have the mind of God. And you see, we will always be, as Christians, uh, somehow deceived if we don't have the mind of God. We won't know. We won't be able to distinguish good from evil. We won't be culturally astute. And so when something in the culture is promoted, maybe because we haven't got the mind of God, we might be kind of led astray. We might buy into it. So, oh, that seems like a good opinion, a good world view. Well, how will you know whether it's good or not if you don't have the mind of God? You won't. You won't be able to discern. So laziness produces stunted influence. We won't love and support the way we ought to, each other the way we ought to, and also stunted influence discernment. And so no wonder our author says in verse 6, therefore, he says, therefore, let us move beyond these things and be taken forward to maturity, not laying in these foundations, but moving ahead, getting out of this rut of spiritual apathy. And so that's the first thing our author mentions about spiritual progress. It's stunted by laziness. And I and I pray, church, that each Sunday when we come to church, our ears would be here. But more importantly, our ears would be here as well. Our hearts will be here as well. Amen? That we'll engage with the things of God. That we'll be receptive, not passive. Because to be passive is deadly, as we're going to see now. Because the second thing our author highlights for us is that Spiritual progress not only stunts growth, but spiritual progress or growth in Christ is an absolute must. It's essential. And it's essential for this reason. I want you to pay attention. Failing to develop in Christ, failing to grow in our faith, makes us dangerously vulnerable. All of us. Dangerously vulnerable. Vulnerable to what? Well, what he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, falling away. That's his term, falling away. Now, he means falling away from Jesus, or to use imagery drawn from Hebrews 2, drifting away from Jesus, that we can be so passive that our passivity can lead to a hardness of heart, and that hardness of heart can end up being shipwrecked. We can, we can fall away from Jesus Christ. Now, now this is this is challenging. I said it would be challenging this morning, and it is. So let me, let me just back up a little bit, because verse six here is a part of this warning passage, and it starts in verse four. And so I want to read out this passage, and then I want us to consider um, this more extensively so that we can respond to it appropriately the way we ought to as Christians. And so the warning passage here begins in verse four. He says these words, he says, it is impossible, all right, so we're in the realm of black or white here, right? We're not in the realm of gray here. He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. He gives us five examples of, of these people's experience. Maybe it's a genuine faith experience. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He says, once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, okay? Black and white there. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Striking words. And then he gives us this illustration drawn from the realm of agriculture here, farming illustration. He says, verse 7, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. That's the way land is supposed to work, right? When you farm it. Yeah, it receives the the rain, and it's good soil, and it it produces vegetation, a crop of fruit. That's great. But verse 8, listen. He says, But land that produces thorns and thistles... So there's something wrong with the soil going on here, is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. Now, he's speaking metaphorically of those who will be judged by God because of their ingratitude, because of their apathy that leads to apostasy. This is challenging. One New Testament scholar, David Peterson, he writes this about laziness in this passage. He says, quote, There's David. This passage stands, he says, as a warning about where laziness could lead. This is confronting. Laziness can lead to this, falling away from Jesus. Apathy can lead to apostasy. Now, it's confronting, but it's also puzzling, this passage, these warning passages, because a lot of New Testament scholars and a lot of pastors, I'm one of them, are not too sure whether this warning, this particular warning, is for genuine Christians or for those who just seem to be Christians. All right, so I, I thought we'd have a bit of a teaching moment, okay, where we just kind of stop and pause and reflect because these passages are very, very important. They're very serious about falling away from Jesus. And so allow me to give you the three dominant interpretations of these passages, all right, these confronting, puzzling passages, three interpretations. The first one I'm calling the hypothetical interpretation, all right, and This view goes, those who espouse this view say that our author here, when he warns us, is speaking hypothetically. That is, he doesn't really believe that this is possible in the life of a genuine believer. And those who hold this view point to verse 9, which follows this warning section, because our author says, even though we speak like this, like warning, 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 dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. So, in essence, this interpretation says that this threat is really not a threat. It's a warning without teeth. It's an empty threat. Now, what what do you think of this interpretation? A bit dubious? I I struggle with it, personally. Because I I really think that this is a legitimate warning. Yeah, This, this, This is possible. This, this could happen. I mean, I don't think he's being uh, hypothetical here. I think that makes no sense because for a warning to have any power to it, um, if, you, if you don't heed it, there's consequences. Okay? It would be, it'd be like me. Just imagine for a moment there not being anything uh, uh, like fire. Right? Just imagine that the fire didn't exist. Okay? Just, you got that? You've never experienced fire in your whole life. All right? and, I tell, and I say to my girls, my three daughters, um, don't play with fire. It's deadly. And they look at me and they, they say, Dad, what's fire? I said, don't worry about that. I don't know what fire is, but just don't play with it because it's dangerous. Okay, just... And they turn to Mum and they say, Mum, Dad's going on about playing with fire. What's fire? And that's like, I don't know what fire is. He's your dad. Just roll with it. I mean, it, w- it would make no sense, right? Because there is such thing as fire. And the reason why we warn our kids about the danger of fire is because they can be burnt. The reason why he's warning us here about falling away Is because falling away is a possibility. He's not being hypothetical, and so I think just shelve that interpretation. All right, here's two better interpretations. The second one I'm calling the authentic interpretation. Now, when I say authentic, authentic, I mean this: that those who espouse this view think that he is warning genuine Christians here. Those who have been born again, those who've experienced the things of God, that they are. Christians, and he's warning them about losing their salvation, squandering eternal life. Now, this is a better interpretation, and it might be right. Okay, so i just say that. I'm trying to be humble, All I'm just being suggestive here. Maybe this is the right interpretation, because many Christians hold this view, and they point to the verses we've just read out, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6. Um, And they say, this this seems to be explaining a genuine conversion experience. And so, yeah, we think that true, genuine Christians can lose their salvation. However, and you knew that however was coming, didn't you? You knew it was coming. I'm not so sure. I'm not so certain. And the reason why I say that is because of other New Testament passages that seem to be so clear that Christians, true, genuine followers of Jesus, cannot squander eternal life. And let me point to two examples in the New Testament. John 10, and I'm going to get into a lot of trouble here, but John 10, 28. This is Jesus. He says, I give them, remember who's doing the giving, the Son of God. He says, I give them, in context he's talking about his people, his sheep, us, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, in the Greek, that's very emphatic. Very emphatic. It's, it, it can almost um, you know, be translated, they will most certainly not lose eternal life, perish. Yeah? He's being very, very clear cut here. So I'm giving this to you and you won't lose it. The term eternal life in the New Testament is a synonym for salvation. They, they're used interchangeably. And so essentially he's saying, Jesus is saying to us, and this is a word of encouragement, he's saying, if I've given you this salvation, you cannot lose it. And just in case we, we miss that, he goes on to say, no one will snatch them ass out of my hand. I think that's pretty conclusive, pretty clear. What about the Apostle Paul? Here's another example, Philippians 1.6. This is what the apostle says. He says, Being confident of this. Of what? Well, he goes on to tell us that he, namely God, who began a good work in you. Right? He's talking about conversion. We heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit opened our hearts to believe Jesus, to love him. He's begun this good work in you. He will do something. What will he do? He will carry it on. This good work that he began to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That term completion means glorification. It's the final step. In the process of salvation, where we may complete, we'll be free from sin and, 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 and all the things that um, owl us as, as Christians that get us down. He, he's saying that God's going to do this work, and, he, and, and it's as good as done. He's working this in our lives. yeah. And so it seems to me, again, that this is very convincing, that the true believer cannot lose what they've been given, what God has started in their lives. And so, although this second interpretation might be right, I think it's highly unlikely. And so, that takes me to the third main interpretation here. And I'm calling it the synthetic translation, interpretation. Meaning that he's addressing Christian, seeming Christians. People, they're not genuine believers, but they only seem to be or appear to be Christians. That, that, that he's warning them to repent. He's warning them to... to uh, take stock of their condition in the presence of God and, and, and repent and to turn back to him. And the reason why I say that is because of other New Testament passages as well. For example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. I think this is very, very clear. Here's the Apostle John. He says this. He says, these people, these... Christians that seem to be Christians, I call them waxworks Christians. Externally, they looked legitimate, but they got no life within. These people left our churches. all right. now, follow his logic, but they never really belonged with us. All right, so they attended church services. They attended small group. They even sang songs in church services. They prayed. They put money in the, the plate uh, on the plate or in the in the bag. But, he goes on to say, they never really belonged to us. How? Well, otherwise, he says, they would have stayed with us. They would have stayed in the community. They would have stayed with the household of faith. When they left, he says, it proved that they ne- never—they uh, did not belong with us. You follow his train of reasoning here, his thought? So, so I, th- I think that this is a helpful passage to place on top of these warning passages. That, that, that what he's getting at here is he's warning those who are in the church who may not be legitimate Christians. Because, look, listen, every single fellowship has genuine believers and those who only appear to be, and this fellowship included. And so what are we to do then with, the, with these warning passages? Well, well, two things, I think. The application part here is that first... I think this warning passage ought to cause us to really examine our lives in the presence of God. To see whether we are in the faith, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13. And in that examination process, maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal to us, no, you haven't had a genuine faith experience, a conversion experience. And so I think these warning passages are to cause those who are synthetic believers, waxwork Christians to actually repent and turn to Christ. But also, I think these warning passages are intended by God as means to help his people persevere in the faith. How so? Well, let me explain this. When I, as a Christian, read these warning passages, you know what happens to me? I have what I call a Psalm 139 experience. Do you know the end of the psalm, that psalm, where the psalmist says, oh, search my heart, God. Examine my heart to see if there's any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. That's the effect that these warning passages have in my life. I kind of think, oh, Lord, am I, am I being lazy? Am I being apathetical? Lord God, would you would you test me and search my heart? And And in that process... I'm encouraged. I'm, I'm, I'm stirred because he reminds me of genuine faith and, and what he's done in my, my life. And, and that's the effect that these warning passages are to have in each of our lives. We're not to say, oh, you know, I'm a real Christian, so this warning's not for me. We're to, we're to take this warning into the presence of God and say, Lord, I have had a season of laziness. I, I, I've been neglectful. Of my spiritual discipline, I have I have and and yeah I, I don't want to walk away from you Jesus. you see you see how the, these warning passages start to have this effect in us well I don't want to walk away from you Lord. I, I know that I, I've lost to a degree my first love that, that I've started to love other things and, and Lord God would you help me you see and in that you repent and there's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to renew your faith in that moment. And so I I think that the Lord uses these warnings as means to help us endure to the very end. Amen? Amen. And so these warnings are real. And so I, I pray that you will take these warnings seriously. Yeah? And you will take them into your closet. You take them into your secret place and pray them through. So... That's the second reality that our author highlights here about spiritual progress. It's, it's essential. It's, it's an absolute must. Well, Here's, here's the third one, and, and now you can take your seatbelts off. Our author not only gives warnings to help us uh, in a, kind of persevere in our faith. He gives us mainly encouragements. And so we've experienced the hammer, now the honey. Because in verses 12 through to the end of of, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, he gives us this incredible encouragement. It shifts. The, The focus shifts from being on us to being on God, who he is and what he did and what he promises to do. And so our author says this, essentially, that growth in Christ is nourished by our experience of God's faithfulness. It's nourished, it's fed, it's fertilized, so to speak. The root of faith in God is fertilized by this experience, this tangible, and I pray, deep experience of God's dependability, which in turn results in the fruit of spiritual maturity. That's that's how it works in the Christian life when we experience God's faithfulness. And so to help us experience this in order to nourish our faith and to help us progress, he gives us three affirmations in this text of God's dependability, of God's trustworthiness, his his dependable promise, his dependable character, and his dependable son. Right? Promise, character, Son, this is all good news, so you can enjoy this part. All right, his dependable promise. Listen to what he says in verse 13 of chapter 6. He says, When God made his promise to Abraham, what was the promise? Well, drop down to verse 14. He says, I will, here's the promise I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, this is the foundational promise in the whole Bible. This this promise governs the plot line of the whole scripture. And it was a crazy promise. Here's God coming to this old guy, saying to this old guy, Abraham, Abraham, you and your wife, you're going to have a mighty nation. And they're like, really? He said, yeah, look at the stars, count them, you won't be able to. Well, so shall your descendants be. And not only that, I'm going to bless you, this nation that's going to come from you. But not only that, they're going to be a source of blessing and healing and salvation for the whole world. This this crazy promise. And yet, let me ask you, did God keep it? You don't have to be silent. He did keep it. He kept it. Did, did the people of God keep their side of the covenant? No. They made promises which they broke again and again and again and again and again and again. And yet God was rock solid. He made this promise, and it came to fruition. Because we're told in Galatians 3 that the seed of Abraham, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, Jesus, he came. And through him, he's the source and the founding head of all blessing and wholeness and healing. And so God did keep his promise. And listen, he keeps his promises still. He doesn't make promises to us, ultimately the promise of having the curse reversed in our lives and experiencing resurrection. The ones we lose, they're going to be resurrected and we're going to be resurrected. That promise, he doesn't make those promises with crossed fingers. He doesn't make a promise, oh, by the way, I've crossed my fingers, okay, just in case the promise doesn't come through. No, he, his promise is rock solid. It's, it's more reliable than the law of gravity It's more dependable than the rising sun. His promise will always be fulfilled. And the more we rest in that promise of God, the more we will be encouraged, especially when things go wrong in our world, which they will, we'll be assured, we'll base our lives on his rock-solid promise to do us good. But listen, he goes on because he not only gave Abraham a promise, he not only gives us a promise, that should have been enough, but also, he confirmed the promise with an oath. In other words, he bound himself to this promise. All right, so verse 13, he says, listen. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater to him to swear by, did you ever do that as a kid? All right, you shouldn't have done it. I did it. You know, when you said something to your friend or you made a promise, you knew you wouldn't keep. You say, I swear on my mom's life. Did you ever say that? <laughs> Repent. It was terrible to say that. Well, I did that. But here's God, essentially not doing that, but he's saying, I can't swear by anyone greater. You know, I swear by my mom or my dad because they're greater, but, but God couldn't do that. And so he says, he swore by himself, and then he gives us the promise, verse 16. He says, people swear... By someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Or at least it should, but in God's case it does. Verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his uh, purpose very clear. And what is that purpose? To reverse the curse. To renew us. To take us home. To be with him for all eternity. That's the promise. Very clear, he says. He confirmed it with an oath. You You know what's going on there? God, when he made this promise to Abraham, essentially said this, Abraham, I'm binding my life and myself to this promise. And if I don't keep this promise, I'm going to die. Because if you remember in in Genesis chapter 15... God tells Abraham to do a very strange thing. He tells Abraham to take animals and he kills the animals and he cuts the animals in half and he places the two sides of the animals kind of in a row. And then God causes Abraham to fall into a trance. And in that trance, he sees this image of God, the manifest, manifestation of God like a, like a burning pot moving between these dead carcasses. And in that, God was essentially saying, because this is what they did in the ancient world, God was saying, Abraham, if I don't keep this promise, I will become like these carcasses. That's huge. Here's the God who cannot die saying to Abraham, I will die if I don't keep this promise. And why did he do that? Well, verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, fled from judgment, to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged because we can be assured that our God is in our corner. He's for us. He's put his life on the line. He's bound himself to this promise. And that takes us naturally. And I, can hope, I hope you can see where we're going now to the third dependable thing. That is God's son. Because listen, how was God going to actually fulfill this promise? How was he going to reverse the curse? What does Galatians 3 say? By becoming a curse for us on the cross. And so incredibly, this is how much God bound himself to this promise because he bound himself to the cross. You know, what I find remarkable and so encouraging about this is that this promise found here in verse 14, I will surely bless you and multiply your descendants, this promise was made directly after Abraham's testing in Genesis chapter 22. And hopefully you know the story, you know, God tests Abraham and he says, I want you to Offer up your son, Isaac, your only begotten son, Isaac, to me. And he's about to do it. Uh, We're told in Hebrews because Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He had incredible faith. And he's just about to stab his son. And God intervenes. Whoa, Abraham. Whoa, whoa. Now I know, we read in verse 17 of Genesis 22. Now I know that you really fear me or treasure me, you honor me, now that I know, because you are willing to give me your only begotten son. Now, church, we can actually use these words when we pray and when we come to, into the presence of God and know that he's for us because of his dependable son. Why? Because, listen, we can now say to Father God, Father, I know that you are for me, that you, are lo- that you love me, because you not only were willing to give me, give us, your only begotten son, Jesus, the true Isaac, but you did give him up for us. This is how we know that you really do love us, because you gave us your son to make true your promise. You really did bind yourself, literally, to this promise, because your son, our dependable saviour, gave himself on the cross for us. Listen to how this passage concludes, verse 19. He says, we have this hope, this reverse curse, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner place, the inner sanctuary, Old Testament language for the very presence of God, where, where whom? Our forerunner, Jesus Jesus, that, that term forerunner is a military word. It carries the idea of Jesus going ahead of us and defeating enemies, defeating sin and defeating death through his death-conquering resurrection, defeating it for us. And now where is he? He's entered on our behalf in the, many, in the very presence of God as our dependable Savior, this one who went, through the, went to the cross for us to rescue us, to make true God's promise. He bound himself there to help us have this full assurance of faith that he is dependable. And you know, when this kind of hits home, when this penny drops further and further in our hearts, we'll experience joy, we'll experience assurance, this, this hope that he's given us that's kind of based on God's promise that will never, ever fade. When, when we really um, allow this to penetrate our lives, we will find that spiritual progress is the natural, or should I say, supernatural result. Because that's the way it works. When we experience God's dependability here, it it fertilizes this root of faith in our hearts, which results in the fruit of spiritual maturity and spiritual progress. Amen? And so, church, in conclusion, let's not be lazy. Let's not be sluggish with these things. Come on, when we come to church, let's, yeah, bring our ears, but let's bring our hearts as well. When you read your word, and I trust you are reading the Bible. I heard someone say recently, I don't really read the Bible much. That shouldn't be true of anyone here. If we're truly born again. We, we ought to love the words of our Savior. Yeah, they're hard. They can be confusing at times, but that doesn't mean we, 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 we cease reading them. We give ourselves to them publicly and privately so that we may grow up in Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord God. And most of the time it's honey and it's sweet. And it encourages us. And yet sometimes it's a hammer. And as your people, Lord, we want to receive the hammer and we want to receive the honey. And we want to be f- thankful and grateful for both, Lord God. Because you use both the hammer and h- the honey of your word to help us persevere in our faith. Lord. They're, they're means to help us endure to the very end. Lord God, I pray that your word would have that effect in our hearts and our lives today, Father God. I, I pray, Lord God, for those who might not be yours, who may, Lord God, after hearing this, think to themselves, I'm not sure if I'm a real genuine follower. I have motion, but I don't really have passion. I pray, Lord God, that you would cause them to turn to your son, Jesus. That, Lord God, you would help them, Father, Uh, Make that step of faith. And they really would experience your Holy Spirit in not just a tasting way, but a deep, profound way where they know because they have that inner witness of your spirit that they are your children, the sons and the daughters of God. Lord God, I pray for those of us who may uh, be discouraged, Lord God, because of laziness or or lack. I just pray, Father, that you would stimulate us, Lord God, that you would inspire us, Lord God, to, to realize that you've begun a good work in us and you will see it through to completion. Father, I pray, Lord God, that this warning that we've, encountered in your words would have that effect in our lives, Lord God, that we really would examine our hearts in your presence to see if there's any offensive way in them. And Lord God, would you ever be gracious and merciful and lead us in the way everlasting? Lord God, that's that's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, if you would like prayer for anything this morning, don't hesitate. You can come forward.